0: Welcome to Money Talks. My name is Mike Campbell. As I say every week, I'm glad you're with me. And I've got a lot of reasons. Hey, by the way, I got to tell you, in my shocking stat this week, I've never given one that made me feel so old. And this is a fun one. And it's one that everyone will recognize. But my goodness gracious, it absolutely shocked me. So stay tuned for that. I've also got Joseph Schachter on with me. He's anticipating maybe the buying opportunity of say over the next five years coming up. He'll give you the details, gonna be interesting. It's all, of course, about oil and gas with him. I've got Ian L. Paterson is with me. Talking about well, cybersecurity, I always go to him from Pluralock, but did you read this stuff about uh, TikTok and the ability to actually trace your footprints on that? You know, what's your, uh, you know It's not a new story in terms of everywhere you look, privacy is an issue when it comes to uh, what's happening in the world of cyber. Well, Ian's our go-to person for that. I'll ask him questions on it. I've also got Ozzy talking about uh, the latest in real estate. Victor, what happened in the markets this week? I got Michael coming up, all of that coming towards you but first let me start by saying you know when i read or heard as i did this week in reaction to the verbal assault on christia freeland and grand prairie all the talk about toxic politics and the divided country my immediate response was toxic divided are you kidding me i mean the politics of division are the norm and somehow some people are feigning shock that it has consequences I mean, frustration, anger, verbal attacks, threats, they've been aimed at politicians for decades. I mean, that's nothing new. I can speak, by the way, directly to that. I have a brother who was in politics and his wife's office was bombed. You maybe remember when Prime Minister Kretchen had a pie aggressively shoved in his face in Charlottetown. That's over 20 years ago. No, I don't want to go into the trucker's convoy, but I'll give you a hint there. Other than to say it was an opportunity for dialogue. But come on, there was no interest on either side. It was an opportunity for leadership. None was there. The truckers and hundreds of thousands of people, maybe more, supported them throughout the country, expressed their frustration, their anger. Same time, politicians, along with many members of the media, expressed their contempt. What do you think the response would be? A less toxic political culture? I mean, I'll finish with this. I mean, look at the last election. You had Quebec City Liberal MP, Joe Lightbound. He stated that creating divisions and stoking them was actually the strategy, in quotes. A decision was made to wedge, to devise, divide, rather, and to stigmatize. I fear that this politicization of the pandemic risks undermining the public's trust in our public health institution, end of quote. But that's the big picture. He's talking about trust. As I said, the politics of division going on going on for decades, but at the risk of being accused of sort of a recency bias, I think it's more serious today, more serious consequences. I mean, whether we're focusing on Donald Trump or Justin Trudeau, Joe Biden, Emmanuel Macron, you name the leader, it's more serious. Let me explain. Because we got poll after poll telling us that the level of distrust of politicians is at an all-time low, while anti-establishment sentiments around the world are at an all-time high. I mean, come on, it goes back several years. Look at the yellow vest protests in France. You had Brexit. You had the election of Donald Trump. You had the newly formed five star movement's victory in Italy in 2016. You had separatist referendums in both Spain and Italy. I remember the anti government gas protest, tax protests in Argentina, Brazil, Colombia. I have literally dozens of other examples of the rejection of the establishment. And that includes the mainstream media. I mean, whether it's fair or not, the polls consistently reflect the growing distrust of the media. But my point is that trust is what it's all about. That's what it comes down to, full stop. The toxicity of today's political environment is a byproduct of the loss of trust, and it also foments greater levels of distrust. I want you to consider this, and it doesn't matter where you put yourself in the political spectrum. Our entire system, from banking to credit, everything financial, the entire economy, to the rules that govern society is actually founded on trust. And what scares me? is we're witnessing in real time the erosion of trust in the system. And to suggest that it comes down to some individual politicians, I think is ridiculously short-sighted. I mean, look around. Sri Lanka, Pakistan, Ecuador, Venezuela, Argentina, are all current examples of what happens when trust leaves the system. I mean, I'll go back a bit, but it's not a small deal in 2016, when nearly two-thirds of Democrats didn't trust the voting system for the presidential election because of Russian interference. But here's the thing, a similar number of Republicans didn't think Biden's election in 2020 was legitimate. Distrust of government oozes when you look at the farmers' protests, but look at the number of countries. Netherlands, Belgium, Poland, Italy, Germany. I think it could be historic regardless of whether the mainstream media is reluctant to cover it. So yeah, I agree we're more divided than ever. Less trust than ever. And we should take maybe a serious look at why, because we better stop this trend. Is it something like the moralizing and self-righteousness of our issue debates right now? Because it begs for demonization of anyone who questions, in this case, the government narrative. I mean, we saw that in COVID, saw it in climate change. It seems like a revelation, though, to many in the establishment that people actually get angry when they lose their jobs, frustrated when they're dismissed and ignored. I mean, fairly or not, Finance Minister Freeland became the lightning rod in Grand Perry for years of demonizing the workers in the oil and gas industry. I mean, solely focusing on domestic politics, though, obscures the bigger point. Canada's not going to be immune to the increasing trend of distrust of government. Instead of looking first to acknowledge the problem, maybe we should acknowledge the role that all of us are playing, including government, special interest groups, in fostering the sentiment. That's a major mistake, though, to not do that, with far to ignore it instead. It has far-reaching consequences beyond just a toxic political culture domestically. It's one that manifests into more profound social unrest, which is now stoked by sky-high energy and food prices that are a direct result of government policy. So the politics of division? Well, to borrow from H. L. Mencken, be careful what you wish for. You just might get it good and hard. Hey, by the way, as we come into September, you might notice some changes on our website. I invite you to go to mikesmoneytalks.ca. You can always get immediate access to the current show. Plus, there's an archive that goes all the way back to 2016. We got daily updates of interesting facts, quotes, and content. So do, yeah, go to mikesmoneytalks.ca. But here's the other thing. I had some people say, hey, I didn't know you did that. Because we also have a button to subscribe to our free newsletter. I mean, I really do recommend it. The word free kind of helps, I think, but you'll get advanced notice of upcoming uh, guests, exclusive early bird offers for conferences, webinars, and exclusive contents. As I said, it's all free. We put out two editions a week. And there's so much else going on at this time, but I'll tell you this, when you listen to the program today, you're going to hear some sponsors. It's a little different. We're advertising for the first time. After all, the program is free. They're only, but we are only letting companies that we actually know directly, that our team knows directly. So if any of what they're offering is of interest, we hope you'll take a moment to learn more. Contact them directly too. And hey, if your organization would like to look at sponsoring Money Talks podcasts, well, drop us a line at info at mikesmoneytalks.ca and I'll get Grant and the team. They'll be happy to talk with you. There's so much more happening, but I'll tell you the one thing first. I so much appreciate you listening. And I really do appreciate if you tell your friends and your family about the Money Talks podcast. Much more coming your way. What a surprise. Every week the world revolves around, hey, what are the central banks going to do? What are interest rates going to do? And, of course, the leading indicator of that or the big driver of that is what's the economy doing? Well, we got our GDP number this week, uh, Wednesday, 3.3%. I thought the key there, though, was underneath the analyst expectations of 4.4, underneath the StatsCan's own expectation of 4%. I want to bring Mike Levy in right now to discuss this and the market ramifications. I mean, there's still, it's all about interest rates because we've borrowed so much money.
1: Well, it is, Mike. And to me, what's the surprise? Now, I know the GDP number came in a little weaker than what analysts said, but one GDP number does not evolve into being the whole whole overall situation of where we're going and raising interest rates. And I've got to say, after the Fed chair, Jerome Powell, spoke at Jackson Hole, said exactly what I think every analyst, what every investor who follows the market thought he was going to say. And the next day, the Dow sells off a thousand points like, oh, my God, what a surprise. My surprise is, is they approached it as if it was a surprise yeah i think what's interesting is that the big debate rages
0: on is that is will the central banks push their respective economies at more further than a soft landing, do you know what I mean, beyond a a, a soft landing and get into uh, more major difficulties. You know, recession is the word that they throw around all the time. And there's clearly was a lot of people who heard the central bank rhetoric, didn't quite believe it. I think they came out of Jackson Hole, though, and saying, man, I mean, how much clearer could he have made it that inflation is their number one goal to get it back down? But here's the interesting thing, Mike, that's going to spur another debate is their idea of getting inflation down, if it gets back to, forget their 2%, if it gets to, say, 3 or 4%, which, of course, again, influence, influences where interest rates are going. So that debate isn't over. But I hear what you're saying. You said, obviously, a lot of people thought the Fed was not serious. And when they sort of came out of Jackson Hole, said, oh, my gosh, they are. And hence, sold off. But in Canada, the same thing is I don't think we've seen enough market weakness, uh, economy weakness for the Bank of Canada to back off. So, I mean, the percentage of analysts, the majority are still saying, hey, they're looking at a three quarter percent interest rate hike. Remember, it was a one percent hike in July. So next week, we'll find out the answer. But right now, the markets are saying, hey, look for three quarters of a percent because the economy's not weak enough yet to encourage the Bank of Canada to slow down.
1: And this is where I really take a critical look. And I find the Bank of Canada much less political. Let's face it, they're all political, much less political. And Tiff Macklem, the governor of the Bank of Canada, there is no wishy-washy. There is no seesawing with him. He's letting it be known, unless there's a huge downward surprise where we're going yet in jackson hole um we we got the impression that maybe they would not raise by three quarters of a percent tuesday's wall street journal of this past week are now talking in the u.s of a half a percent hike in rates mike but once again it's the impact on the markets that's doing it to me Uh, again i i i saw bank results in canada they were much weaker Uh, A week ago than what we thought they were going to be. And yeah, all right, that's fine. The Bank of Canada is still going to go 75 basis points, but I think there's something else going on in the US. And you and I have talked about it. You alluded to it. Maybe it's the amount of revenue that they've got to take in in the way of taxation.
0: Yeah, and that's the big worry. If you slow down the economy too much, hey, you still got the interest payments in the States and in Canada. You've got entitlement payments and that's a much bigger problem there. But I want to come back to your comment about the politicization. I don't think either central bank wants to be politicized, but here's the difference. They got midterm elections coming up, (laughs) you know, and I think that's a huge thing. It it, it just, even in the commentary, you know, it it might not be the coming out of the Federal Reserve, but if the commentary saying, hey, if they don't get this under control, you know, the Democrats are going to lose. And that sort of, creates that impression that it's been politicized. But I'll tell you this, if you politicize a, a central bank, then you can have a look at what's happening in Venezuela, Venezuela, Ecuador, you know, uh, so many different countries, Ghana, Turkey, the list is long and long. And that's what happens when you get the politicization of a central bank, you get massive inflation, much higher than we're seeing, and an erosion of currency because you know what? Politicians can't be trusted with the economy. They can only be trusted with their own self interest. So, but it is interesting that difference in the environment with the midterms coming up. Yeah, I think that is an overlay to what's going on in the States. But that's again, what I think Jerome Powell uh, made it very clear. We're getting inflation under control and just, sorry, Mike, I'm going on and on. But one last thing that's kind of interesting on this is that because inflation impacts 330 million Americans, if they push the economy into uh, more than a, a, a soft landing into a more severe downturn and people start losing their jobs even double their rate which is you know coming on toward four percent right now three and a half to four percent about fifty five point six million people even if that doubles you're still only talking about impacting eleven to twelve million people inflation impacts 388 million so I'm not sure so sure that's not part of the
1: equation too well two two things stand out with me now Mike number one is that real estate is weakening significantly in both countries that that's trans-border and it's happening and that's going to affect the economies of both countries there is no doubt because the wealth effect the wealth of owning the wealth of being able to borrow against and also I think, that we're now looking at first time jobless claims in the US which are showing a slowing of job growth we 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 obviously have have this whole job thing in Canada and the United States but i i just somehow think that this wishful thinking of maybe the bad news is not going to be as bad so maybe we'll sell the market off maybe we won't sell the market off but it's if It's as if everybody is hanging on the last word. And in my experience, Mike, that doesn't work.
0: Well, I think you've got the right variable there. I think they're watching wage growth. They're watching and they're watching, but not just wage growth, but really the employment situation is more important to them. And they've made that clear for the last couple of years. Employment was key. So we haven't seen a strong enough erosion. Clearly in some of the tech sector, you've outlined that a couple of weeks ago uh, of that, but I still think, yeah, that's the variable. It's not going to be black and white. They say they're data dependent. And by the way, there's a lot of criticism for that because they say the data is the lagging indicator, not the leading indicator. So that's going to be the, the I guess what we're saying here, Mike, is the whole debate ain't over yet. <laughs> you know, probably get the rate increases. And then the whole debate ramps up again is how soft is the economy. And one last
1: thing, just keep the gravel handy because as the last words come out the market's going to be on a roller coaster i can tell you that is not going to change okay mike good stuff talk to you well actually you've got a couple of weeks off i'm
0: sending you away on 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 location for us here (laughs) on money talks we'll chat with you then bye mike time now for the quote of the week You know, I get this question all the time. How long is this energy problem, these energy shortages going to last? And of course, along with their devastating consequences, is it going to be one year or two years or 10? Well, I'm leaning to the longer timeline, given the reluctance of whether it's politicians or climate activists and their allies to admit they've made mistakes here. I mean, have you heard any politician or activists in Canada admit that the no fossil fuels agenda was a dramatic oversimplification? Or that without a realistic plan to obtain the mineral resources, you know, copper, cobalt, lithium, the push to renewables was nothing more than rhetoric. Or that is dangerous fallacy to suggest we can do away with fossil fuels without a replacement grid ready to go. And what seems to be a big revelation also is that wind and solar power are intermittent power and need backup from other sources, usually fossil fuels. And now the consequences, which were obvious this time last year, in terms of lack of supply, exacerbated, of course, by the sanctions on Russia. They're obvious and devastating. But here's the point. That hasn't forced a change in approach for so many activists and their political allies. I mean, Germany's still saying they're going to close three nuclear plants in December, and instead, they're ramping up coal consumption. I mean, absurd doesn't do it justice. And that brings me to the quote of the week by Ursula Gertrude van der Leyen. She's the president of the European Commission. In a speech this week, she stated in quotes, what we see is, yes, an energy crisis, but it's mainly a fossil fuel energy crisis. So we need a green solution against the fossil fuel energy crisis. She went on to say, we need clean, we need cheaper, and we need homegrown power. We need it big and we need it fast. Wow. Well, first of all, renewable energy isn't cheap. It's certainly not cheaper than fossil fuels in virtually every jurisdiction it's it's tried. It survives on government subsidies. But the we need it fast, are you kidding? This is still without a plan, as I mentioned above there a moment ago, to secure the necessary minerals. And no mention of where the power is going to come from to actually build that infrastructure, as well as build the wind turbines or solar panels. As usual, no shortage of big promises in terms of power produced. And the short timeline? Without a practical plan, including where you're getting the financing? I mean, FAST is not possible. As long as unrealistic plans that double down on the approach that got Europe, especially Germany, into this mess in the first place, you know, complete with still decommissioning nuclear power, I mean, these aren't serious suggestions. As long as politicians refuse to acknowledge the importance of oil and natural gas and now some of the reliance on coal, I mean, solutions to the energy crisis are still a long way off. What's more amazing is that Ms. van der Leeuwen, she comes from Germany, where the very transition she's pushing for is the root cause of her country's serious woes. I mean, come on. It it just goes on and on. So, hey, when is this energy crisis going to end? One year, two year, 10 year? As I said, leaning to the longer term until we admit how we got here in the first place. You know, every week there's more to report. Every day there's more to report. I mean, the world goes around energy right now. Duh. You know, so you look at if you cover inflation, if you cover interest rates and you cover energy, there's not much left and the fallout from all of those different areas. I've got Joseph Schachter on the line with me right now. Very pleased to have him with me. Schachter Energy Report. You can find it. Schachter Energy Report dot CA. And I tricked him into coming on because I know Joseph uh, has got a big conference coming up on October 27th. That's a Saturday Uh, in Mount Royal University, and we'll talk a little bit more about that. But I said, hey, come on, I'll I'll promise I'll talk about that. But as he said, you know what? It's amazing. Every day there's more stuff to talk about within the whole energy sector. Joseph, thanks for finding time for us.
2: My pleasure as always. It's so good to be with you, Michael.
0: So I want to talk to – actually, let me throw the big one out at this time. Close your eyes. Five years out, what are you seeing?
2: Five years out, uh, I think we're in one of those energy super cycles where we had one in the 70s, uh, you know, when the formation of uh, OPEC and uh, there was a shortage of oil. and, And we, you know, we had petroleum. We were looking up in the Beaufort, east coast of Canada. We found the big discoveries at Hypernia. There was a shortage of oil and there was demand growth. The second one was uh, China's became a big player in 2000 to 2008. Big demand growth during that time. We went from $10 to $148. And China went from consuming three and a half million barrels, producing four, to all of a sudden importing uh, a large amount because they were consuming 12, 13 million barrels. Today, they're about 15 million barrels a day. My view is that the next cycle, which has already started, is the renewable cycle. We need more lithium, we need cobalt, we need nickel, Um, you know, eat copper. And so those new new products have to come from the emerging world, from uh, Africa, South America, Australasia, Uh, some may come from North America, But we're going to use a lot of uh, fossil fuels, oil and natural gas, to bring those products on so we can have that renewable so that by 2035, California can say we're not selling any more fossil fuel cars. It's all going to be EVs from then on. Well, you're going to need a lot of material to create those EVs. And the percentage of EVs versus car sales right now is very low, which means a lot of materials are going to be needed for that uh, transition. So I think that people want to be long. Natural gas first, light oil second, and then you want to take advantage of the service sector because the service sector is going to be the one that is going to see margin expansion because of utilization, more utilization of equipment, which is very low still, and from pricing power. Uh, as the equipment gets used up and as equipment has to be upgraded to the latest technologies. So we think that our, at the conference, we're having a nice mix of all of those. And I think it's going to be our best conference yet. In eighteen and nineteen, we had about 22 companies. This year, we're planning on 35 companies um, and about 600 attendees from 400. Uh,
0: let me just, uh, and I'm going to refine what you've just said or ask further about uh, what you said, uh, especially the service side. It's kind of interesting. How are the service stocks reacted? We know, and I'll come back to this in a sec, so we don't have to jump the gun, but we see a big correction sort of in the oil stocks, for example, you know, uh, what about the service side? Have they corrected in the same kind of way?
2: Yes, we've seen corrections in them as well because the uh, the uh, pricing power has not been there because the activity rates haven't gone up enough. Um, you know, they're, they're, right now they used to include things and now they're not including, so they're getting paid for those. But the real pricing power, day rate pricing power, is nowhere near it needs to be uh, to justify new equipment. So the industry still has a long way to go before they get the pricing power up to where they need it. Um, And to me, I think that's part of the issue. If it's a a driller or a fracker or a coil tubing company or a, a, a tools producer, all of them have margin upside here. Uh, as the utilization of their equipment goes up, and as the day rates go up, because once you know, once we're at 80 or 90 percent utilization, and there's no new product available, the pricing power goes to the service company. If the company wants, if the oil company wants to drill in 120, 130, 140 dollar pricing environment, three, four, or five years from now.
0: Let's talk about uh, whether they will want to drill. I mean, we've got a structural problem right now, and it seems like the politicians never tire of discouraging the oil industry, or it could be a refiner, uh, even natural gas, you know, (laughs) from producing. I mean, when they talk about windfall taxes, oh, that'll be good. They're talking about capping energy prices right now, oil prices. Oh, that'll be good. You know, uh, it just seems like at every turn, if indeed they want more supply, they take the wrong choice. But that, again, is great for prices going forward.
2: Yeah, uh, look, you know, the Russia situation of pricing and insurance, uh, because the ships carry, uh, have to have insurance. So 90% of that goes through the the, the big exchanges. So they're going to try to cap Russian prices. But Russia doesn't need the West. They've got India that's and, and China that say, Hui, we don't give a damn. We have our own ships to do it. And Iran has its own ships when it comes to selling once they, if there's a nuclear deal. So I don't think that matters. I think the key one that matters right now is how cold is winter, how much storage we have. And the issue is uh, power costs in Europe are at record levels. They're 10 times what they were two to three years ago. They've doubled in the last few months. And so the price people will pay this winter will be way more than they've ever paid And the the many people in Europe, probably 20, 30 percent of them, are behind in their current electricity bills. The U.S. is now showing data this week that about a quarter of Americans are behind in their electricity bills. Well, if you don't pay your electricity bill by the time winter comes, then you may have a problem getting your electricity in the wintertime, especially when it's on allocation or when when there's cutbacks, because they're talking about in Europe – about cutting back uh, supplies by 10-20% and telling you to lower your temperature. And they're telling industry, you're not getting any at all, which is why I think this recession gets worse to Europe, especially Germany, because they're going to gonna say to the ceramics industry, BASF, all of the industries here, we need to cut back as the consumers need it, and you guys have to shut your facilities. And then the whole supply chain related to that casts the shutdown And that's where the massive unemployment pickup comes. And that's where the recessionary data gets very bad.
0: Well, this is why I make a distinction between long term and short term. So I'm going to come to the short term now for a moment. And that is you're seeing, I mean, at some point, people buy less. At some point, they can't afford it. Yes, and I appreciate what you're saying. The reports continue to come out that people aren't paying their bills. There's a big movement in Great Britain to actually not pay their energy bills. I think they, last I looked, they had 130,000 people signing a petition. Their goal is to get to a million, saying we're not paying. You know, but that'll create a reduction in demand. And of course, as we've talked about with you before, you know, the Chinese COVID situation isn't over yet. Their demand isn't where it might be. You know, who knows when that ends, but, you know, take it a year out or two years out. So you see demand also shrink. Uh, You know, the old classic high prices starts reducing demand. So tell us a little bit about the short term.
2: Okay, in the short term, uh, you know, the price of gasoline in the pump average across the states was five, seven or eight at the high in California. And it's now down about a buck. So Biden's running a victory lap because the price of oil's come down from 120 to 86. And uh, that's one of the things where people look at inflation, but the food inflation is not going down. Shelters aren't going down. Uh, wage pressure is still there. But the key to me is the EIA data from from this week. And every Wednesday, we get the weekly petroleum balance sheet. And it showed that Uh, A year ago, the U.S. consumed 22.8 million barrels a day of product and, you know, crude product, um, gasoline, heating oil, you know, propane, etc. That's now down to 20.07. That's down 12% from a year ago. So the U.S. is already showing that the demand destruction is there because of high prices. On gasoline, the other one that we all look at. It's down from $9.6 million to $8.6 million, down 987,000 barrels, a 10% decline from a year ago. Now, remember, a year ago, we were still recovering from post-COVID. So the fact that we're down so much from that, those are big money, uh, numbers proving demand destruction is occurring. The recession, we're going to see it on the 21st, a big increase, 75 basis point. You heard the hawkish testimony from Jackson Hole last Friday. Uh, the Fed is not going to change the plan. You had a good jobs report today, which means that uh, they can afford to be aggressive on their rate increases to slow the economy down. So this cool off in, in North America, uh, we're probably going to see a, a moderate recession. I think in China, it's going to be a severe recession and all the countries dealing with China will feel it. Korea, Thailand, Vietnam, that work and send products back and forth, they're going to feel it. But you know, we used to you know, say... Uh, if U.S. got a cold, we'd get pneumonia. Germany has pneumonia. So all the countries around them, Poland, France, all the countries they deal with are going to see a very, very severe winter here. And to me, uh, overall, that means a, a difficult winter, and that means a significant demand destruction uh, in the near term. Then we see the markets react, like, you know, the stock market's reacting. Tech stocks have been beat up. Uh, you know, we, we were at 37,000 at the high for the year. We're now in the 31,000 range for the Dow. I think the Dow's going down to 24,000 sometime during Q4. I think we're going to see oil prices, as I said, down below 70 uh, in October, down below 80 and, uh, later this month. And I think that is going to cool everything off. And that sets the stage. For the next up cycle now if you if just had one more point in the in the two thousand to two thousand eight cycle, when we went from ten dollar oil to one forty seven we had three of those cool off periods. They last usually six months or into nine months. The market takes them down quite a bit in one case, it was fifty six percent another thirty seven another thirty six so we're having a severe one now. But once we have the recession and data in, and once we break uh, the back of inflation, I think that when we take off sometime in Q2, Q3 next year, that's when we're going to see a long runway where we see these massive moves in, in stock prices. And from the lows that I see, I think the TSX Energy Index could be a four or five bagger. And if you buy the right stocks, you can do well. Just look at the stocks where how much they move from March of 2020 to or you know, early 2022. There were many fives and 10 baggers, and we were fortunate uh, in our uh, in actional alert buy list to have those. And I'm expecting that I will be sending out action alert buys uh, potentially in late September, early October. And then I think tax loss selling will be tough again in late November to mid December. And I expect I'll be adding additional names for people to buy uh, during that window. Joseph,
0: you know, you're saying that is exactly why Uh, I always make this distinction between short-term, short-term traders, long-term. But what I'm hearing is that, again, you're looking for maybe a risk of as much as $20, say, in the oil market. But you're looking for that to create a huge buying opportunity. So a lot of people sitting on cash, at least if they've been listening to money talks, they have been. You know, know, I'm a cautious kind of guy. But that'll create that opportunity, and it'll be a longer-term opportunity once you jump in.
2: Yeah, that's what in in March of 2020 we thought there was a long-term opportunity to jump in. Prices were extremely cheap. Uh, We're not going to get bargains like we did in March of 2020, but I think we're going to see bargains in late September, early October, a bounce, and then. a secondary uh, opportunity during tax loss selling season. Because if the general stock market, the Dow has gone from 37,000 to 24,000, a lot of stocks are going to be decimated and there's going to be people taking tax losses to offset their gains that they've taken earlier. What we're doing in our mindset is walking everybody through all the companies we cover, going through the pros and cons, how did they do in Q2, and where we think the stock is cheap. And that's what we did on our webinar uh, which we do quarterly, and, and our focus there is to answer our uh, subscriber questions and kind of focus them on what we think is the next uh, phase of the market. And so we think that people should be thinking about, okay, what companies do I want to own? And then what price makes them a bargain for me? Uh, and uh, and then, of course, uh, be ready to, to be watching the emails when we send out the actual advice. And then also come to the conference and have face time with the companies you own and the companies you're interested in. And that double test of the research and the information from us and meeting the companies and looking them in the eye and talking to them about their company and where they see taking it in the next three to five years or 10 years, that adds value. And that's where we think our market share is. And that's where I think uh, investors, you know, why investors should take advantage of the offer and come to the conference.
0: Uh, just one quick thing. Um, so again, I want to give the website out, uh, Schachter Energy Report. So give us the website. I'll remind people Saturday, October twenty seventh, and uh, actually give us the website first, Joseph, and then I'll tell you a little something I worked out with Patty. You might not want to hear.
2: Well, it's it, our, our website is uh, the Um and Grant I think was sent uh, by Patty or or Sarah. Um, um, a, a, a short term, short way to get in, to register, to get the tickets, to so get the $100 off on the deal, and then to get those complimentary tickets to come to the conference. Uh, and again, we're doing this for two reasons. One, uh, we've always given the $100 off once a year. But because we want to thank the World Outlook Financial Conference and Money Talks, because in 2017, This idea came up of meeting a vacuum for individual investors to have knowledge on the energy sector and the energy service sector because they know that there's going to be cycles for them, just like in forest products or precious metals. And I thought we were going to see one of those lengthy energy super cycle coming. And we're in one. It started in 2020, and I think it's going to last till 25, 27 this pause that refreshes should give you a chance to use your cash on the sidelines to take your energy weighting component up to what should be whatever your comfort zone is to be fully invested and we're doing that as a thank you for the world outlook and money talks helping us to get this product off the ground and it has been a great success and we really want to uh, return the uh and the thank you with those uh, complimentary tickets
0: well, I always appreciate getting a special deal for Money Talks. You know that. That's music to my ears. And I'll just remind people to go to Report.ca. Schachter, though, is spelled S-C-H-A-C-H-T-E-R. Schachter Energy Report. Joseph, thanks for finding time for us. Much appreciated. Time now for the shocking stat of the week. Wow. That was one of the most memorable, no make that, the most memorable event in Canadian sports history. Obviously Stanley Cups or the Blue Jays winning the World Series or the Raptors winning the NBA title. Women's hockey domination at the Olympics. I mean, take your pick. I mean, there are so many gold medal Olympic performances that are so memorable. I mean, I was there when Sidney Crosby scored the overtime goal to win gold in 2010. There for the women's win, too. I mean, there's so many thrilling performances to mention. And they're all on the short list of most memorable, but I think there's still one that stands out, at least for Canadians of a certain age. It's one of those where were you moments on September 2nd, 1972. The 50th anniversary was on Friday, which began the Canadian-Russia Hockey Summit Series that at long last featured the finest professional players from the NHL. Now, there were notable exceptions, by the way. Bobby Hall had just left to play in the World Hockey League, and the incomparable, I mean, Bobby Orr, wow, sat out with a knee injury versus the multi-time world champion Russians. But you have to understand the context and the significance. It's incredible. I mean, the politics were all around this, because the Cold War was raging. The series pitted the West's democracy for the versus the Eastern Bloc's communism. It was East versus West. And the Soviets saw this as a test to see which system was superior. I mean, the players weren't just playing for their country, but for freedom and democracy versus communism. In our arrogance, by the way, the vast majority of us thought it would be a walkover, especially when Phil Esposito scores 30 seconds into the first game in Montreal. Paul Henderson scored six minutes later, gave Canada a 2-0 lead. But I'll tell you, from then on, it was all Soviets whose skill. They had a crisscross five-man attack, and their speed baffled Canada. The Soviets went on to win 7-3, and I think that was a major shock for Canadian fans everywhere. The game changed hockey. As former Montreal Canadiens coach uh, Claude Ruel stated, the Soviet forwards were one of the most finely honed units they'd ever seen. In quotes, they are always moving, never standing around. They head-manned the puck as well as anyone has ever done and they always seem to be in the right place to call the game on september second the first game in the summit series 50 years ago a wake-up call for the nhl is an understatement by the way if you're not familiar with the summit series i can't recommend enough you see the cbc miniseries miniseries or watch uh, the dvd set now let's flash forward to the final game the series was now tied three wins each and one tie And by the way, 16 million out of our population, of 22 million at the time, watched the final game. Schools, businesses, universities stopped to watch Russia take a 5-3 lead in the final period. Canada managed to tie the game up with goals by Esposito and Cornwallet. Then in a moment that is etched in sports history, well, wait, that Canadian history, you heard it already, Paul Henderson scored the winning goal, 34 seconds left to play. YA
3: has it on that way. Here's shot. Henderson made a wild fast another shot
0: right by the So now the shocking part, as I said, 50th anniversary of the start of the summit series. a Leger poll found that more of the 1,500 Canadians they polled conducted just in this month for the social actually it's conducted in August, by the way. Um, for the Association of Canadian Studies, it found that 68% of respondents were not familiar with the 72 Summit Series. Only 48, uh, 42% were. I'm in shock hearing that. That was, as I say, the biggest sporting event in my lifetime to watch, amongst many other fabulous ones, but the biggest. And talk about a generational divide, one that makes me feel depressingly old. of Canadians under the age of 35 had heard of it. That's it. That's it. I mean, really? 77% had not heard about the Russia-Canada Summit Series? My gosh, my hair just got a little grayer. I just got a little older. And I'll tell you, for all of those who aren't familiar with it, you missed a magnificent event. As I said, go watch the documentary. You know, if it's not energy, food or inflation, one of the things that I just continue to see is stuff about cybersecurity. And I really, I think it's important that we stay on top of that. And that's why I'm joined by Ian L. Patterson. He's the CEO of Plurlock Security. And I, I call him on all the time and I'm very pleased that he's uh, willing to share his expertise. So, Ian, great to have you back. I know sooner than planned, but come on, I've been reading this stuff. There really is scary stuff happening out there. I mean, let me start with this. What the heck is going on with TikTok?
3: Well, Mike, great to be back. TikTok is no stranger to data privacy concerns. In fact, the U.S. military says that TikTok is a national security concern uh, and including several military branches have barred TikTok from official devices.
0: Can you explain, though, the reach of TikTok? Uh, assuming our audience may not be entirely familiar with that app. I know it's popular, though.
3: Well, TikTok is the new social media platform that's really taken the world by storm. Very popular amongst younger demographics. And it's it's effectively a video platform. Uh, there's been some controversy over the last little while around the extent of tracking and data collection that the application has. However, it's just recently come out within the last couple of weeks that the app not only tracks what you do inside the application, but also if you launch a browser from the app, that browser, everything is tracked. So what that means practically is if you're in TikTok and you open up a browser and then you go to... Uh, a an e-commerce store and you buy something, TikTok is able to collect your credit card number. That means if you go from the TikTok app and you click in the browser and you go to log into something, TikTok col- can collect your password. And that even means that if you go from TikTok through a browser and then go to your email, for instance, Uh, and write an email, TikTok could collect your email. So it's an extremely concerning amount of data collection opportunity that this application provides.
0: Now, the other thing that I've been well aware of, but I'm not sure how many people are, is I call it sort of the elephant in the room. Uh, That is, who actually owns TikTok?
3: TikTok is owned by a company called ByteDance. This is a Chinese controlled corporation. Well,
0: obviously that could certainly raise some concerns.
3: Certainly could, and particularly when you're talking about the extent of data collection uh, going back to a, a Chinese company, it is it is concerning.
0: Hey, let me come back to something for a sec, because, you know, I keep reading also about Pluralock in the news. Uh, obviously a busy time for you, but uh, you've been in the news for a number of reasons now.
3: Well, I, I can't resist taking a bit of a victory lap. Uh, Pluralock has been putting out quite a lot of news. Uh, in particular, we've announced not one, but two acquisitions. Uh, we've we've closed on a cloud security company called Cloud Codes that's now part of the Pluralock family, as well as we've announced the signing of a, of an acquisition agreement um, with a New Jersey-based company doing approximately $14 million a year in revenue. And last but not least, we also announced the closing of the first tranche of a financing as part of a convertible to venture.
0: That's interesting from an investment point of view, a convertible adventure, really at this stage of your company's growth, I, I, I found that very interesting.
3: Well, I think it's really an indication of the fact that Plurilock is maturing, it's growing, uh, and now has access to more financing options uh, than we might have a year or two years ago.
0: Well, The other thing, by the way, I want to make sure people are aware of that you've launched a newsletter for your investors.
3: Correct. For those interested in keeping track of the goings on in cybersecurity, uh, we have uh, lassoed uh, all of the cybersecurity news on a twice weekly basis. Uh, and so for those who are interested, they're welcome to sign up to our cybersecurity corral uh, to get the, the latest of what's happening in cybersecurity. And it's particularly for an audience of non-cybersecurity folks.
0: And if you don't mind, just let, let everybody know where they can find the cyber corral.
3: Best way is actually to connect with me on LinkedIn, Ian L. Patterson.
0: There you have it, Ian L. Patterson on LinkedIn. Hey, Ian, thanks again. I know I really appreciate that we can just call on you in a few moments' notice, uh, and this time again, thank you. Thanks, Mike. Always top the list to check in with Ozzy Jurek uh, for Money Talks. And there's no, uh, you know, this is an incredible time, obviously, with interest rates bouncing the way they are, you know, more talk of another boost as we uh, come into September. Well, it's actually next week, as we've been talking about. So, presto, lots to talk about. But I want to talk about this affordability debate, Ozzy. Uh, You know, people are saying, yeah, we've had a decline. There are predictions of further declines. But, you know, kind of that big question is, I've been waiting to get in the market, is now a... Good time to buy. I mean, how do we even assess that question?
4: Yeah, and the, the trouble that we have, we sometimes assess it simply on the full price. We're saying it used to be $2 million, Now it's only one seven. That is now affordable. Well, that's totally wrong. I mean, urban analytics makes a good point that affordability is not just the price of a property, but what comes out of your pocket every month. And then you realize that a lower price and a higher mortgage could even more money going out of your pocket, even less affordable. Just to support that mortgage and you have said that over and over again for years it's the interest rates it's the interest rates and it's the interest rates that drove our prices up and the interest rates surprisingly that are now putting a damper on them
0: so I mean, bottom line, you're saying is to focus on the monthly payment and uh, assess. And of course, obviously, we're making a distinction, and I'm glad you always do, between are you looking for an investment? Or are you looking for, you know, someplace to live? So uh, in that case, I'm talking about someplace to live. And again, it comes right back down to can you afford it at these levels, at these prices and at these interest rates? And that will sort of determine your decision.
4: That's right. And, and it should. I mean, the, the thing is, look, I have been around a long time. And Every year that I've been in the business, somebody says, there's too many realtors in the business, oh, and young people can no longer afford it, and then they say, I wish I bought five years ago. There's no such thing as a good time. Is it a good time for you, right? Are you in a financial position, or are you scared to death when our great bank, TD Bank, says prices will drop 25% in the first quarter of 2023? Well, that would also give me a little little set up, right? I no longer worried about the affordability equation. I'm now scared, scared psychologically I'm not ready to buy.
0: And especially that goes for people who are investing in real estate. You hear, or, you know, we do it in the stocks all the time. If, if you're believing the preponderance of analysts saying, you know what, look out for another big decline here in the same way as you said, the TD blank comes out and says, hey, there could be a 25% price decline. You know, that's certainly going to discourage buyers at that point.
4: Sure, you know, and this uncertainty and that lack of clarity actually accelerates the downturn, which it probably normally wouldn't. The new numbers are just uh, uh, just proving it again. In August, we were down again, some forty percent in sales. And some of those numbers are sort of eye-popping, eye <laughs> popping, eye eye popping, eye openers. <laughs> Is there such a thing? But they are, you know, when you measure ourselves against last uh, March, March two thousand and twenty-one, we had. 2,600 sales, now we have 1,100 sales. So no matter what the percentages are, that's reality. We're selling fewer properties.
0: Hey, let's, let me jump back and give you a little promo for your land rush conference coming up, uh, you know, on September 10th, because one of the other sides, as you say, is the volume starts dropping, uh, you know, 50% down in sales, but you're going to talk about at that conference. One of the many things you're going to talk about how to be in the 50% that are selling if you are in the market to sell your home at this point. So I want to just I'll talk about more about that in a bit, but I wanted to give you a little plug on that, that you'll actually be dealing with that specifically. Hey, if you're trying to sell your home, so well, 50%, uh, are still selling, so jump in, you know, at that point. But let, let me come back to something else we're hearing about, which is sort of this rent-to-own program initiated by the federal government.
4: Yeah, first of all, uh, you know, there was a big project there uh, that's $2 billion to create thousands of new units that Mr. Trudeau announced in a great speech. But what it really was, it was $2 billion that included already three projects that fall fell under the Affordable Housing Act. Actually, that been in the last two budgets, they have already been in there. So, so before we get too excited about all this new money. But 200 million are just set aside for rent to own. And this rent to own, again, there's really no details. Uh, in fact, Mr. Trudeau urges the municipalities and developers and builders to come up with ideas. So what that means to me is it's a great announcement But you need a leader in this. Somebody has to say by the scruff of the neck, and this is what we're going to do. That's available. And then it'll work. Otherwise, honestly, Mike, it's just a nice announcement. Yeah, and st- yeah still more
0: talk 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 hey you know what if they had built a house for every time a politician mentions affordable <laughs> housing over the yeah. last 20 years we wouldn't have a shortage and by the way that was a, a discouraging number coming out of uh, Statscan's uh, gdp number was that there is less money going into housing at this moment especially renovation side but overall and, it, we, and this is at a time when we absolutely need More product on the marketplace, even when it's slow like this, you've got to start building because, of course, we know that we've got uh, a commitment to about 1.3 million newcomers coming into the country over a three year period. They're going to live somewhere. So I just think the overall push, we may be in a short term lull, but longer term, we're still creating these pressures in the demand side.
4: There's no question and i mean at, at the same time Canadians are cutting back on spending there's a new poll out but also let's remember these rent to own programs have been in in government uh, focus since nineteen ninety one It's not that this all of a sudden in twenty twenty two we have this bright idea it it is essentially what people realize uh, uh, rent to own means that the buyer and the seller sign an agreement, giving the buyer the right, for a fee, to purchase the property at the end of a set term for an agreed upon price. So that can work, and there's many subjects. And in fact, at our conference, we have a lady talking exactly about that. But there's the, the concepts in the private sector are as varied as you know the, the, the that there are people on the on in the. I was going to say people in the ocean. You can really see where I am. My mind is not always all there. But there's a lot of people out there that have a lot of plans on buyer and sellers getting the government to own. But we don't really know what it means that the government has in mind. You know, I think they see larger corporations coming up. In the budget, they actually said owners might grant no interest mortgages. How? No owner is going to do that. You know, it's very confusing. And the upshot is don't hold your breath.
0: Well, and you're going to get a chance. There's a lot of questions here, obviously, but next Saturday, you're going to be doing the Land Rush Conference. Uh, That's September 10th, as I said, Uh, but you're going to talk all about this. I mean, you've got to focus, as I know you will, on inflation. You're going to focus on interest rates. Uh, What I find is kind of interesting, you're talking about the three best cities in the U.S. That kind of caught my eye and retirement cities in British Columbia, by the way. Uh, You've got cash flowing situations in Alberta. You know, speaking of rent to own on that part, uh, but... uh, mortgages you're going to talk about i mean all of it and as i said earlier talk about how to get your house if you want to sell you're in that 50 percent that is selling but so tons are going to get answered so if real estate's your deal just go to land rush canada did i get it right this time aussie you land sure rush did. canada dot i'm testing you now not me <laughs> dot land com rush, dot com see i thought i'd get you there aussie <laughs> great stuff well uh, you're going to have a busy week obviously in preparation et cetera, next saturday as i say Attend the land rush conference.
4: Yeah, thank you very much, Mike. And if you attend, anyone attends the conference, you will not leave with any questions that are unanswered. And Mike, just very quickly, um, I you know Groucho Marx is sort of a known as a comedian, not as a philosopher. But he said that outside of a dog, a book is a man's best friend. But inside of a dog, it's too dark to read. <laughs> oh God. Ozzy Jurek, ozbuzz.ca,
0: ozbuzz.ca. Hey, I got Victor Adair coming up here. You want to stay with me for that? Plus a Goofy Award, all on the Money Talks podcast. <phone rings> It is always a great way to start the week and to finish and reflecting on last week by chatting with, talking with Victor Adair, which you can find at victoradair.ca. He brings uh, to us about 700 decades. No, Vic, you're not that old. But decades of uh, market experience and an honesty and integrity as he approaches the market that's valuable for everyone to hear. So, Vic, I want to start with, uh, uh, you know, kind of a, a couple of things. Uh, Jackson Hole. You know, that was the big story last Friday, but the market needed to to digest the much more hawkish tone coming out of the Federal Reserve. And I I just think, and I know you chronicle this all the time, but to make sure people really understand the degree to which that just ripples through every possible market.
5: Well, if we go back to the middle of June when the FOMC meeting uh, raised rates by three quarters of a point and threatened there was going to be a lot more to come. Going into that meeting, we had the Dow Jones, for instance, fall about 3,000 points in in a week or so. So it seemed for a lot of people that we had reached peak Fed at that point. And after that, for the next month and a half or so, you know, the market kind of relaxed, the interest rate yields backed off, the stock market rallied and, and so on. But here lately, I guess maybe over the past three to four weeks, there's been a reassessment across markets, currencies, interest rates, commodities, and the stock market. And the reassessment has been that the Fed is going to stay more aggressive, more hawkish for longer as they try to do what they can to cool inflation. And all those markets are taking that into account. Yeah, I want to walk through some of that. I mean,
0: obviously, the stock market paid close attention. You know, it's a tremendous sell-off you know, after he spoke on Friday and continued through most of the week, uh, you know, at least aggressively through most of the week and then, you know, tapered off, of course. But uh, so it's not just the stock market, though. You see the
5: ripples in so many other markets, too. Well, the stock market had what I call a bear market rally from mid-June to mid-August. And since mid-August in the last three weeks, we've given back about 60 percent of that rally. In the currency market, it's shown up in spades. I mean, we hear the U.S. dollar is strong, but, I, I, like, how strong? The Japanese yen is at a 24-year low against the U.S. dollar. The British pound is at a 37-year low against the U.S. dollar. The euro is at a 20-year low against the U.S. dollar, and the euro is at an all-time low against the Swiss franc. The, the, the market here on the currency side oh, and the Canadian dollar Not to forget that, uh, at the end of August, we had our lowest monthly close in two years. So the Canadian, compared to a number of other currencies around the world, is doing pretty good against the U.S. dollar. But it's basically U.S. dollar strength on the back of what the market perceives the Fed is doing. And, And forgive me for pointing this
0: out, but I mean, a strong U.S. dollar has been an absolute consistent dominant theme on Money Talks that uh, the weakness or strength in your own home currency was to be used to translate it. But I wanna add one more thing here, and that is back to your interest rates. I mean, the interest rate differential between the US And Japan, holy smokes, you know, look what you're getting even on a one or a two year in the U.S., let alone, you know, it diminishes as you go out. But it's still so significant vis-a-vis the euro, vis-a-vis the Japanese yen. I mean, that is also, it's just like a bank offering more interest rate and you're not worried about their safety. Man, money piles in, pushes the currency up.
5: Well, you said a key word there and that's safety. You know, I've said this on Money Talks 40 times over the years and I'll say it again that capital comes to north america to the united states in particular for safety and for opportunity so the opportunity is the yield pickup you can get in the uh, in the united states the the opportunity also is for instance, the better opportunities in the stock market, and the real estate market, that sort of thing. So we, ha- we have seen literally like a tidal wave of capital flow into the United States. I, I want to also, I don't want you to leave without
0: talking about the relationship to gold, though. That you know, A lot of people don't appreciate the interest rate, the inflation relationship, you know, in terms of, you know, if you take the interest rate that's posted and you minus the inflation rate, that's called the real rate, but the relationship
5: with gold has also been pretty consistent over the years. Well, the US dollar is, is um, let's say, a strong US dollar is toxic to the precious metal market. I mean, it's just a simple way to say it, but certainly real rates, which have jumped here lately as the regular rates have gone higher, that's more toxicity for for the precious metal market. And while we're on rates, Mike, I have to point out that the classic 60-40 bond uh, stock portfolio is down about 20% this year. Now, that's the worst year. If we, if we ended the year right here, that would be the worst year for the 60-40 portfolio since 1936. So why that's important is that that's the background or the I should say the, the backbone of a lot of retirement planning. You got some money in stocks. You got some money in bonds. If one side's not doing so well, the other side's balancing you out and so on. This year, that, that, that's just been bad news. Yeah, I
0: mean, and that's such an important point, at least again, coming back to one of uh, my big themes is if you really want to erode confidence in government, play around with someone's pension. That's what's in jeopardy here. You've got tons of state municipal pensions who are already on shaky ground with massive unfunded liabilities. And now presto, if you add a weak investment uh, performance, you know, because bonds have gone, uh, the price of bonds rather has dropped, Uh, stocks have dropped to some great degree. Holy smokes. I think that's just a, a, a bubbling cauldron ready to erupt. And that's a new, by the way, that was a new adjectival expression. And I'm sure it won't catch on the bubbling
5: cauldron yeah. <laughs> okay i don't think it's catching on <laughs> <laughs> i don't think so either uh, well, the real interest rates have been really important we've got the, the two-year yield in the united states here is at a 14 15 year high and it's been the rate of change that's been so important as as interest rates have gone higher very quickly and it's just rippling out there across these different asset classes and mike it's, it's the end of August here, basically, just starting September. I'm just thinking as we come back after Labor Day, we could just see a bang in these markets.
0: Well, we'll be here to chronicle it. Hey, and just a reminder, Vic, uh, if you're in Calgary, you know, I talked to Joseph earlier. Joseph Schachter's got his big energy conference. Well, I decided to send the high-priced help, and Victor Dare is going to be there at the conference live. He hasn't been anywhere in person in two years, you know, so uh, this is going to be a great opportunity to visit with Vic and chat and uh, any questions too. But he'll be at uh, Joseph's Energy Conference coming up. So, Vic, uh, safe travels, but I know we'll get to talk with you while you're there and before.
5: Well, I'm really looking forward. Joseph's been a really personal friend of mine for years. I really respect his work. And also, you know, want to see what happens at the conference. There's going to be some great companies there. I want to see what they have to say. So I think Joseph has got me hosting the Money Talks Room at, at his conference uh, in the, around the 20-something of, uh, of October.
0: Well, as I say, we'll talk about it again, but I just want people to mark that on the uh, calendar. Vic, go out and have a a terrific week, and I know you're going to be busy, as you say, coming back from the Labor Day action as we go here. Uh, Just go to victoradare.ca, victoradare.ca, and stay with me because I've got a big-time goofy. Time now for this week's Goofy Award. And let's go to the gift that just keeps on giving. California's virtue signaling climate nonsense versus reality. So far, reality is undefeated, although it's a big fight. California's banned the sale of new gas cars by 2035. It's all electric or nothing. Despite the fact that they have no idea how to actually make that happen. You know, here's my big revelation over the last little while, though, is climate grandstanding politicians love to make promises regarding maybe climate change or emissions or renewable energy, electric vehicles. And they put specific dates well into the future on it, which are a big winner, both with activists and most of the media and a significant percentage of voters. I mean, it all sounds so good and determined, a real commitment with a deadline that makes it all the more serious. But what I'm sort of seeing is it's amazing that people don't seem to get that whether they make those goals or not, and they have not with a regularity, well, they'll never be held accountable. No, they're going to be out of office well after the deadline comes and goes. Let me put that another way. I really hope you understand that politicians are actually, come on, making a little bit of fools of us in the public and many in the media by stating goals. They have absolutely no idea how they'd be achieved. But they won't be held accountable because they're long gone before those goals are not met. Anyways, just one example this week, Anglo-American CEO Duncan Wanblad echoed what so many others have warned in stating that, hey, you want to go all electric by 2035? You're talking 17 million metric tons of additional copper. That's what's needed for the energy transition in EVs and other sectors. Well, he's talking about that's like 60 more of their new Quelavelco copper mine. I mean, that's absolutely huge. One of the biggest in the world. He says, you got to get 60 more of those and nobody has even started. And by the way, that mine took three decades to get up and running. And look at the ESG concerns now. It's going to make it more difficult to get permitting. Lots of examples where major projects have not got the permits, have been rejected, based on ESG concerns. You know, the irony is that the ESG is going to derail the climate activist dream of an electric grid powered by renewable energy. But let's get right specifics of this week's Goofy. It's straightforward. Well, California trumpets the end of gas and diesel-powered vehicle. It still hasn't come near to dealing with its own current ongoing energy problems. I mean, once again, officials are warning that there's going to be blackouts and shortages. And by the way, The problem's so severe that this week, in a positive move, I think, the state finally backtracked. They're not going to close its remaining nuclear plant, Diablo Canyon. Come on, that must have been a really bitter pill to swallow for that huge section of the climate crowd who rail against nuclear. But here's the goofy part. Maybe I should say it's the reality part. With power shortages and blackouts looming, the state issued the following edict, in quotes, Set thermostats to 78 degrees or higher. Avoid using large appliances and charging electric vehicles. Really? Hmm. No charging your Tesla. Don't charge your electric Ford 150 or your Chevy Bolt. Come on, that is not much of a sales pitch for going electric. I mean, it's a small example among many serious ones in evidence throughout the world. where Reality throws a monster-sized bucket of cold water on ev and renewable dreams and by the way i'm going to give you a little bonus item besides that goofy i mean it's incredible and it kind of relates back to my quote of the week and the failure of politicians and activists to learn anything from the current energy crisis did you know that california and washington led the opposition which now includes oregon to increase capacity of tc energy's pipeline that's the trans canada pipe before in order they wanted just to increase the capacity to export natural gas from Canada to the U.S. West Coast. Come, you have to love it that the Western states petition opposing the increase in capacity. The states argued that allowing more natural gas to flow from Canada to the U.S. would harm their efforts to combat climate change as the reason shifts to renewable energy resources, whenever that will take place. I mean, good luck with that. Given the immense shortage of necessary resources, the need to massive build out of the infrastructure, the numerous regulatory obstacles to get approval for the massive wind and solar projects. Come on, that's a long way off. In the meantime, I think it's a pretty easy bet. You're going to see more shortages and more blackouts.
4: This is the Money Talks podcast with Michael Campbell. Available at Mike'sMoneyTalks.ca or through your favorite podcast subscription service. Join us on Facebook at Michael Campbell's Money Talks and on Twitter at Money Talks Tweet.